Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. As we look at this morning's passage, I want you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, and just to give you the big picture of what God is trying to teach here by what is taking place in Jacob's life. Hosea chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. It says, And Jacob fled to the land of Aram, That's Padan Aram. That's where Laban is. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. Verse 13, And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. You notice how Hosea in in these two verses are comparing what has happened to the person Jacob, even calling him Israel, which is what he'll be known by later on, to the nation of Israel. And Hosea is comparing how God had preserved Jacob in Padan Aram, in the household of uh, Laban. And how he had provided for him and preserved him there and protected him. And he's comparing that to how Israel then was protected and provided for in Egypt and even as they left Egypt. Or in other words, Hosea is comparing the Exodus event to what happened to Jacob. Now, why would Hosea do that? Well, that's because, as I've mentioned before, every author in the Bible, every human author in the Bible, always builds on previous revelation. They don't, uh, especially when talking about previous revelation, they don't pull things out of thin air. But they read Scripture carefully, and they build on that to make application or implication as Revelation moves forward. And how is it that Hosea then compares the Exodus event to what happens to Jacob in Padan Aram? Well, when you think about it, there's Jacob and Jacob's descendants who was the nation of Israel. Jacob goes to Laban's house and he's welcomed by Laban. Israel goes to Egypt, and they're welcomed by Pharaoh with open arms at the start. And over time, something happens. Well, in the case of Israel, Pharaoh changes, a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And they were put They were made to be slaves. There was harsh servitude for 400 years. 
And similarly, Jacob, as he's in Padan Aram, if you know anything about Laban as we've looked at him, he's essentially treated Jacob like a slave. In fact, so many, uh, in, especially in the chapters we've looked at, again and again, this repeated word, serve, 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 servitude of Jacob is mentioned as he served Laban. He was essentially treated as a slave in Laban's house. And then the word of the Lord comes to the nation of Israel through the prophet Moses, where he's going to deliver his people. And a similar thing happens here. We saw last week where God comes to Jacob and says, now it's time to leave Laban's house. In fact, if you look at verse 9, Genesis 31 and verse 9, where remember, Jacob had become prosperous and uh, Jacob says this in Genesis 31 and 9, and thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. That word there, taken away, if you turn to Exodus 3 and 22, where God will then tell the people of Israel, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That word there for plunder in Exodus 3.22 is the exact same word that is used here in Genesis 31.9, which says taken away. Or in other words, Jacob, God has plundered or taken away the livestock of Laban. And then even moving forward, when you think about it, as we will see, particularly today, Jacob leaves in haste. When you think of the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel leave in haste. And then we will see this language of fleeing and overtaking and encampment and even passing a water body. You think that's exactly what the nation of Israel did, where they flee from Egypt. They're in a hurry to leave Egypt. And they cross a water body and they come face to face with this water body. And the Lord, there's an encampment there and the Lord protects them just like he will in today's episode with Jacob. And then we also saw, and we will also see in fact, how in the Exodus event, God by sending the plagues makes a mockery out of the, the idols of of the, the Egyptian idols, because each plague pointed to something of the idols of Egypt. And even here we will see how God will make an, a, a mockery of the idols of Laban. And ultimately, where it is God who delivers Jacob from Laban. And ultimately, in the so this episode that we're going to look at is really just a small picture of what will happen to the nation of Israel, to his descendants in Egypt, where God will ultimately deliver or save a people for himself. And ultimately that Exodus event further then points to what Jesus will do when he will save his people from the power of sin and death and from the clutches of Satan himself. So, so that's the big picture here. 
And what it's meant to do, as the Israelites would have heard this, is to remind them, yeah, what has happened to Jacob with regards to Laban as God has delivered him, as God has saved him from Laban, from that slavery, is what God did for you, and he will continue to do that and take you to the promised land. And so the implication is then, have confidence that God, your God will save you and take you to the promised land. And even for us, then the implication is the same, that this God of the Bible who has revealed himself in the form of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, he's the only one that can save. And it is only through him where we will finally be home with him. So I've titled this morning's sermon as Jacob's Exodus. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at the escape in verses 17 to 21. And there were Then we're going to look at the dispute in verses 22 to 42. And then lastly, the agreement in verses 43 to 55. And really, I want to just say again, it's just one big overarching application even. And that is that there is only one true God that is the God of the Bible. And he is the only one that can save you and can deliver you. Okay, so let's look first at the escape. The escape in verses 17 through to 21. Now just as a quick recap from last week, we saw that, you know, despite Laban's efforts to deceive Jacob and to sort of get free labor for himself, that's what Laban was trying to do when he said, oh, you take all the, uh, you know, funny colored sheep and flock. And then even remove them from the flock to start with. Jacob, on the other hand, we saw also schemed Laban. Where he selectively bred just the stronger animals for himself. Where in the end, he would have all the stronger animals and Laban would be left with the weaker animals. Now, he didn't steal them. It was all lawful, but he was very crafty and definitely scheming. But the wonderful thing is that despite Laban's mistreatment of Jacob and Jacob's own scheming, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to take things into his own hands and cleverly think of, oh, how can I you know, get more prosperity for myself? We saw that the Lord still graciously prospered Jacob and made him very rich. Way more than Laban. Why? Because the Lord had promised him to do so. Because it was part of the big Abrahamic promise. You know, the promise of seed and blessing and land. So he's already got now many sons. Now there's the the blessing aspect, the personal blessing which involved material blessing, particularly for the patriarchs, and that's what's taking place there. 
So at this point, Jacob had become very prosperous. And this resulted in a rising tension between Jacob and Laban and his sons. Laban, if you remember, no longer even on the outside showed any favor to Jacob. So things were heating up in the household of Laban. But the Lord appeared to him and promised Jacob that he would be with him. And he said, okay, you know, you've got seed, multiplication of seed. There's blessing happening. Now there's one other aspect, which is the promise of the land. So I want you to return to the land of your fathers, the promised land of Canaan. And so Jacob then gathered his wives and told them what happened and how the Lord had prospered them. And his wives then acknowledge, oh yes, I see what the Lord has done. And finally, they end with saying, so then do whatever the Lord has asked you to do. That's where we ended last week. Which brings us now to the next scene. Verse 17 and 18. So Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. And he drove away all his livestock all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Notice how the text emphasizes that when Jacob leaves, he left with his household, all his livestock, his property, the livestock in his possession that he acquired. So the, the text is really emphasizing that everything that Jacob now is taking with him belonged to him. Yes, there may have been some scheming going on with Jacob, but it, was all le- it all legally belonged to Jacob. Jacob didn't steal anything this time. And at this point, Jacob has has a lot of livestock. He's a very wealthy man, and it's all rightly his, all that he's taking with him. Verse 19. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So it says there that Laban had gone to shear sheep. Now sheep shearing happened during springtime. This would have been a very busy time, particularly for the herdsmen. And typically, large groups of men would be away from their homes for an extended period of time, especially if they had large flocks. So during this busy time, when Laban and his sons and his men would be away from their house, this made it an ideal time for Jacob to make his move, to escape from Laban's house. It says there that Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. Now again, what you see here is while Jacob is obeying God's command to leave and go back to his father's land, 
He's not going about it the right way. I mean, instead of trusting God to protect him and confronting Laban saying, hey, this Lord has come to me, the God of my father has come to me, and he has called me to leave you and go to the promised land. What does Jacob do? He's scared and he devises his own plan. He's, he's trusting in his own clever schemes again, and so he flees in secret. Jacob still is trusting in his plan. Now, as they were leaving, it also says that Rachel stole her father's household idols. Now, let me just say this. It's never right to steal anything, no matter what it is, idol or not. It is never right. It is always sinful to steal. No matter what, how big a thing it is or small a thing it is. So Rachel is already in the wrong in stealing. But why would she steal these household idols? Well, household idols, they were thought to be gods that... False gods, really, that's what they are. But... You know, in the people's minds, in godless people's minds, they thought that these false gods, these idols, would provide protection and blessing for the home. So while, you know, just previously it said that the wives recognized the Lord's work in Jacob's life in blessing him. So Rachel recognizes the Lord has been work in Jacob's life, but what you see here is she hasn't totally given up on her idol worship. In fact, when we come later on in Genesis 35, Jacob will tell his entire household to commit themselves to the Lord and to bury their household idols at the time. And I'm pretty sure at that point, these idols would have been buried as well. But at this time, Rachel is still an idol worshiper. And she's hoping that these stolen idols would provide protection for them and perhaps even blessing as they head out from Laban's house. You know, the irony is this, that these idols don't just not protect them. In fact, these stolen idols would be one of the big reasons why now Laban will come chasing after them and they will be in danger. What can we learn from here? Well, one of the things that you see is God's providential working. Because God is providentially allowing Rachel, though she's sinning, He's allowing Rachel to steal these idols to ultimately show at a later point that these gods are nothing and they can do nothing. They're absolutely powerless. So what's the big application here? There is only one God. There is only one God of the heaven and the earth. There's only one creator who created you and I and everything else in this world. And that is the God of the Bible. The God 
whose word we've been listening to. The God who spoke and made everything that we see around us. You know, there are so many religions in this world. And in fact, there's even some who think there are many gods even to this day. I've shared this story before, but I think it's appropriate again, at least a few years ago, but I think I'll, I'll share it again because I think it's appropriate to what I want to say. Uh, you know, it was, it was uh, in 99, the second year of uni, and um, I remember sharing the gospel with one of my friends, um, who was one of my uni mates. He was a Hindu by religion and explained to him how he stands guilty before God, how he's a sinner, and how his only hope is Jesus. That it is only if he puts his trust in Jesus and he turns away from his sin that he will be saved. And I remember at the end of that conversation, he readily accepts and he's, he's half, you know, he's got a few tears coming down his eyes and he's like, oh, I believe I'm a sinner you know, I believe in what Jesus has done. He is my Savior. And I was overjoyed thinking, wow, this has got to be the easiest and quickest conversion stories that I've ever encountered in my life. And so a couple of days later, so we lived in dorms. A couple of days later, I went down to his room to see him. And uh, his door was a little bit ajar. And so I just pushed it open and looked inside. And what I saw was he, was, he had just taken a shower. He's standing with, uh, you know, just a thing around his waist with a towel. And he's worshipping his idols. Now I was shocked and confused and didn't know what was happening, but I wanted to be respectful, so I waited till he finished his prayers. And as soon as he finished, I was like, hey, what are you doing? He was like, I, I'm, I was praying. I was like, yeah, I, I know, but remember we talked about Jesus? You, you, you said you, you, know, rec- you recognize your sin and you recognize that Jesus is your Savior and things like that. And then what are you doing? He's like, oh yeah, I, I still do that. And then he pointed to He had all these idols and he had this picture of Jesus. And he was just there. And so for now, for him, Jesus was now the God who forgives him of his sins. And then he had all these other gods that took care of other things. It still happens to this day. Maybe not in our culture, perhaps. Maybe in our culture, it's just the the things of this world. The secularist society, whether it's you know, the wisdom or the science or the uh, you know, status or money or whatever it might be. And yet, let me tell you again, friends, brothers, sisters, there is only one God, and that is the God of the Bible. Yes, He is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But they are one. There is only one God, 
and he is the true and living God. There's no other God in this world. He alone is creator. And he alone is the one who rules over all and is sovereign over all. And in fact, it is precisely because he is the one who rules over all that each and every person, believer or not, will one day have to give an account to him. So for those of you listening today, I want to ask you, do you truly believe in the God of the Bible? Because you will have to give an account to him one day. And for those of us who are believers, let me also just remind you that because he is the one true God, we must be devoted to him only. I mean, most of us know the great Shema passage, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, that there is only one God. And what is then the implication? The next verse says it, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Why is that? See, because the the connection between the two verses is this. There is one true living God, and so you shouldn't have a divided heart. You need to have one heart, a single-hearted devotion to this one God, as opposed to a divided heart to the idols of this world, as well as the true and living God. He alone is God, and He alone deserves singular allegiance. So here we, from here we move from the escape to the dispute. In verses uh, 22 to 42. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. So given Laban and his men are away shearing, it takes about three days for Laban to get the news that Jacob has fled with his entire household. Now Laban is angry. And he's now chasing after Jacob and his household to do them harm. Jacob, uh, Laban has got an army of men with him. And so there's this repeated phrase that he took his kinsmen with him, that he's not alone. Jacob, on the other hand, he's got his family, he's got his servants wife, children, and livestock. There's no way that Jacob can protect himself. Jacob was relying on his clever scheme of, you know, secretly fleeing to, you know, somehow protect himself and flee from Laban. But that will not help him here. But again, what you see is the Lord graciously intervenes and protects Jacob. 
Despite Jacob trusting in his own schemes, the Lord graciously intervenes and protects Jacob. Verse 24. But Jacob came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. If you remember previously, God protected both Abraham and Isaac previously from enemy kings, as we've gone through from Genesis 12 onwards. Now similarly, God is protecting Jacob now. He's the next one in the promised seed line. And notice God tells Laban not to say anything good or bad to Jacob. Meaning, God is saying, from that entire range from good to bad, don't say anything to Jacob or do anything to Jacob that would cause him harm or cause him to come back and serve you again. That's the idea of don't say anything good or bad to him. In that entire range from good to bad, don't say anything or do anything to him in that entire range to harm him or to somehow manipulate him to get back to come and serve you. In other words, God is saying, Laban, don't interfere with the course that Jacob was taking, if not. So it's like a, you know, a threat right there. Now verse 25 says, And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. Now from verses 23 to 26, terms like fled, overtaken, pursued, pitched his tent. You know, all these words similar to when the Israelites left Egypt and they are fleeing and Pharaoh overtakes them and pursues them. Similar words. And, and, and really there, it's military language, military terms. And it's, what it's showing is that Jacob and Laban are two enemy camps. And Laban's angry and he's coming to war with Jacob. Now verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Laban is saying, why is it that you have forced my daughters like captives to come with you? Why have you bullied them to come with you? Well, we know that that's not true. Remember Jacob, you know, called his wives out, had a discussion with them, and they all came with him willingly. He hasn't forced them to come with him. So it's not true what Laban is saying. Verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I'm, I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? You know, Laban's putting on a show here. He's saying, Jacob, why did you leave in secret? You know, I would have thrown you a proper send-off party and bid you farewell and, you know, kiss my mudskins goodbye. 
Because I am so loving and I'm so generous. Well, if you think about it, you know, the last time Laban threw a big party was at the wedding, and we all know what happened. He deceived Jacob, and he was the one who profited much from it. So he's, Laban's now just exaggerating this. He's just pretending, trying to be this benevolent kind of figure. And I'm sure Jacob and his family, as they're looking at him, are like, is he being real here? Like, Laban is just trying to make himself look good. And as though Jacob is the bad guy. Laban continues. Last part of 28. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. You know, what's shocking here is that the you is plural. Meaning Laban is saying, I have power to harm not just you, Jacob, you all. I mean, this is not a benevolent guy at all. Laban was truly pursuing them to do them harm, but God intervened. And that's exactly what he says. Verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Or in other words, but because God intervened, I can't harm you. Verse 30, and now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? So he comes to a critical issue now. He's like, okay, you long for your father's house. I get that. You were homesick. But why did you steal my gods? Now Jacob first answers the, answers the first question as to why he left secretly. Verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, I left secretly because I was afraid for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. And as for the Stolen idols question, Jacob says in verse 32. But anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. And there's, there's a parenthesis there. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. A couple of things to note here. Jacob had no idea that his wife Rachel had stolen these idols. And it points to the kind of marriage relationship that they would have had. You know, keeping things from each other, that, that's not the sign of a very good marriage. And then beyond that, because he doesn't know that Rachel has stolen the household idols of Laban, Jacob ignorantly says, whoever stolen your idols will not live. Now Rachel won't be found out now, but she will die young when she gives birth to her next son, Benjamin. So now Laban starts searching for the idols. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. 
And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent and did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. So essentially when Laban's now on a hunt for his idols, as he starts going into the various tents, Rachel, now desperate to save her own skin, quickly hides the idols under a camel saddle, and she sits on it. So after Laban's gone to the other tents, as he enters her tent, she doesn't stand up like she normally would to respect her father. And so she apologizes for her behavior, saying, the way of the woman is upon her, meaning she's got her monthly period. So Laban looks for his idols everywhere, but he can't find them. And what you're seeing here is the Laban, the master deceiver, is now being deceived by his own daughter. Laban is getting a taste of his own medicine because he can't find his own precious idols. You know, now this particular section of scripture would have been quite humorous for the Israelites listening to this. Because years later, when the law was introduced, it says in Leviticus 15.20 that the woman during the, that particular time of the month was considered ceremonially unclean. And so anything that she touched or sat upon would be defiled. So really this section here then is an indictment and even making a mockery of the idols. Because what, what the uh, author is trying to say is, look at these idols. They're so small, so puny. So powerless, you know, that they can be hit, so easily hidden and defiled. They're false gods. They're not real gods. Just like the exodus from Egypt, where the Egyptian gods were made a mockery of through the ten plagues that God sent. Here, Laban's idols are being mocked in what has happened. So now Laban doesn't find his idols and Jacob loses it. All that pent up anger for 20 years, all of that comes out. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban and Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. So first Jacob argues how he is innocent of the accusations in the present. And it's like he's setting up court. He's saying, oh Laban, your kinsmen come here. My kinsmen Come here, let me present my case to you. 
and you judge clearly who is the guilty party and who is the innocent party. And he continues to present his case and now he goes to his past. Verse 38 to Verses 38 to 40. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it all myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by the day. The heat consumed me and the cold by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. In other words, he's saying, I have worked hard all this time, Laban. I've taken good care of your flocks. Sleepless days and nights out in the sunny, uh, during the heat of the day and out in the cold of the night. I have served you well, even when I was tired. And when an animal was killed, whether by a wild animal or whether one, of, one from the flock was stolen, I bore the loss. Now normally during those days, you know, if a shepherd, if, a, if an animal got killed by a wild animal, the shepherd would simply go to his master and the master would replace those animals. It wasn't the onus didn't fall on the shepherd. But in this case, even for those losses, it was Jacob who had to bear it all. Jacob goes on. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Not only did I serve you for so long, let's talk about how you've paid me. You've not been an honest man. You've changed my wages so many times. But then he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the, f- you know, this is an interesting phrase that's used only in this chapter, and the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac, meaning, you know, the awesome God that he is. The God that you cannot toy around with. You know, or in the words of Mr. Beaver, talking about Aslan, the lion from Narnia, where Mr. Beaver says about Aslan, he is good, he's a good lion, but he's not safe. Aslan the lion is a good lion, but he's not a little kitten that you can mess around with. He is to be reverenced, he is to be feared. So this fear of Isaac, this awesome God of my father, If he had not been on my side, surely, Jacob says, now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. In fact, that phrase, God saw my affliction, that's another phrase that you will see in Exodus, the initial chapters, where it says, God saw the affliction of his people and then he sets in motion the whole Exodus. So Isaac is acknowledging 
that God, the God of my fathers, is the one who has vindicated me. He's the one who has provided me all this while, and he is the one who has protected me. So what do you see here in this passage? At the end of the scene, it's not Jacob's clever plan to run away. Or Rachel's stealing of the idols that protected them. It's the Lord alone that has provided and protected them. As for the false gods or the idols, they can't protect. In fact, they can't even protect themselves because that's why they're being stolen and hidden. They can't even come outside in any way. They're so puny, so powerless that even men can hide them. That's how ineffective they are. That's how powerless they are. They are powerless because they are nothing. They are false gods. So really in this section, there's this big contrast between the living God, the one who is powerful and faithful to keep his covenant promises, powerful to protect his people in every situation, no matter what the circumstance, no matter the plight or the schemings of his own people. God is still powerful because he is the one true living God unlike the flimsy idols of labor. I wonder if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in this great God. You see, there's not just idols that are made of stone and wood and metal. Oh, there's other idols as well especially in this secular world. There's the gods of the entertainment. There's the gods of sport. There's the gods of human achievement. There's the gods of power and, and status and riches and so on and so forth. So much so that when people so devote themselves to those false gods, those, those idols, that their thinking, their decision-making, their living, everything revolves around that. Sometimes it can even be a person. Everything revolves around that thing or person. And we put our confidence and security in them. But again, as per what this Scripture is trying to elucidate to us is this. There is only one true living God. Everything else is a false God and they are nothing. They are a figment of man's imagination. It's man-made. In fact, the Psalm 115 and verse 8, just recently, uh, I'd spoken about this just to a few brothers and sisters. In Psalm 115, 8, it talks about idols and ultimately it says those who worship idols 
will become like them. In other words, because idols are nothing, because they are dead, when you bow down to nothingness or deadness, you become dead yourself. That you are becoming more and more dead. When you move away from the source of life, when you move away from the living God and turn to that which is dead, that which is nothing, you are becoming more and more dead yourself. That should be a warning for us to keep away from idols and to acknowledge the Lord our God as God alone and give Him all the devotion that is due Him. But let me also just say this. Aside from just saying that He is the one true living God, what you also see here in Jacob's acknowledgement is that because he is the one true living God, he has been at work all this time. He has been providing and guiding and protecting Jacob. This is the Lord's doing. And because he is the living God, he is the one who will ultimately save and deliver Jacob and take him back to the promised land. And that should be a comfort for us as well. That we who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus, the one true living God who has manifested himself as a human being on this earth, that we too can be confident. That no matter what happens in this world, that no matter our circumstances, no matter what trials or difficulty come our way, God will deliver us in and through Jesus Christ and He will ultimately do that. And we should never not hold on to that fact. And so from the dispute now, we quickly move on to the agreement in verses 43 to 55. The agreement. So Jacob has clearly won his defense, you know, showing Laban was the guilty one. But Laban, he doesn't accept anything. He doesn't admit to anything. He's, he's more like a sore loser. And look at what he says in verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, for these my daughters and for their children whom, whom they have born? See, Laban says the, the daughters and their children and, and the flocks, they're all mine. Well, not exactly, Laban. Yes, they are your daughters, but you had given them away. They are now wives of Jacob. The flocks, yes, they originally came from your flocks, Laban. But now the flocks, you know, the spot, spotted and speckled ones, they're legally Jacob's. He bred them all. And this was all the Lord's doing. None of it is yours. So Laban is just still, you know, won't admit defeat, won't admit guilt. 
But he's trying to make himself as the good guy. He's, he says, oh, they're all mine. My children, my daughters, my possessions, my everything. And he says, even though they all belong to me, now what can I do because I'm such a benevolent guy to bless my daughters and grandchildren? So then Laban says, let's make a covenant, Jacob. You know, I, I find this hilarious. Because Laban can't harm Jacob. He can't take away his daughters or grandchildren or any of the flocks because he knows the Lord is with Jacob. But then Laban makes this covenant with Jacob because he's scared of what might happen to him if he gets into Jacob's bad books because this great God is now with Jacob and I don't want to mess around with the fear of Isaac. And so he needs to have some sort of a cooperation with Jacob and so he enters into a covenant with Jacob. So Jacob says in 44, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap, and Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. So there are two structures here. A large stone erected, and then a heap of stones. Laban names it in the Aramaic, which is Jagar Sahadutha. That's his language. And Jacob, on the other hand, names it in Hebrew, which is Galid. And both mean the same. It just means a heap of witness. That this will be a memorial. This will be a pointer to something. And really what is happening here is that Laban and Jacob are now becoming two different people groups. There's a clear separation happening between the two, with each one naming the structures in their own language. In fact, this is what the text was initially alluding to when at the start in verse 20, if you go back and look at verse 20, and then again in verse 24 where it says, Laban the Aramean. It doesn't say Laban the relative, Laban the mother's brother. It is now Laban the Aramean. His ethnicity is brought here. See, because previously the family of Nahor, the the Aramean branch of Abraham's family, that's where the seed line would go to find a wife. Remember? Abraham sent his servant. Now Jacob was sent here as well. But now moving forward, This is not going to happen. Jacob's family line and Laban's family line are going to separate from each other. And God is bringing about this separation between these two peoples. They're making them into two different people groups now. Verse 48. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mispa, and so two names, Galid and Mispa means watchtower. What is he named that? For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. 
So Laban says, may God hold you and me accountable for the conditions of this covenant. Even when we part from here and no one's seeing. In fact, you know, many years back, people have used this thing as almost a benediction. May the Lord watch over you as though it's a good thing. It, this is more a, no, the God is, God is watching you and holding you accountable. This is not a blessing or benediction. So Laban says, may God hold you and me accountable for the conditions of this covenant. And I find it ironic that Laban calls Jacob to not harm his daughters or take, his, take other wives. When Laban himself, he doesn't acknowledge that his daughters are now Jacob's wives. Because remember, he just said, no, they're my daughters. That's what's more important. And if you remember, he was the one who was mistreating his daughters all these years. Where his daughters itself said, this man has treated us as foreigners, as strangers. Laban is blind to his own actions. Verse 51 and 52. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So these two stone structures, they also served as boundary markers now. That's your land, this is my land. I won't cross over to your side and you won't cross over to my side, either of us to do harm to either side. So boundaries are being marked and a dividing line is happening between these two people and people groups. And then Laban says, 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Well, essentially, it's, it's actually because the term God can be, when it's referring to the God of the Bible, it's used in the plural because that's just, uh, that's how he's referred to. But here, in context, what Laban is saying is the God of Abraham and the gods, plural, of Nahor. The gods of their father judge between us. So what is this pointing to? Laban is still clearly an idol worshipper. Because he's swearing by all the gods. Sure, you, you've got your God, but I've got the gods of Nahor. And I'm going to swear by him. But Jacob, on the other hand, only swears by the true God. Last part of 53 and then 54. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So this is typical covenant language. The covenant terms were stated. The blood sacrifice is done. They have the covenant meal together. So essentially now the covenant is fully active. And they're going to be permanently separated from each other. Or in other words, God in an ultimate sense has separated or saved or delivered Jacob from Laban through this permanent separation, saying, you are never going to pass, cross, pass 
cross your paths again. God has, in an ultimate sense, saved Jacob from Laban and made a permanent separation. And God is making Jacob essentially into a people that will follow him, separating this group of people that Jacob will have, separating from them, from those who follow idols. 55, early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is a sad scene, really, when you think about Laban. He leaves with nothing. He leaves the same way he came. He didn't get anything. He lost his daughters, his son-in-law. He's not going to get any more riches. And he's still an idol worshiper. He has rejected the fear of Isaac, the true and living God. I mean, Laban is without excuse. See, when you think about Laban's life, many years back when Abraham's servant came to him looking for a wife for Isaac, remember that servant who was so God-focused in everything? He bore witness to the works of the Lord, how the Lord had providentially brought him there and had guided him every step of the way and brought him to that house. He had spoken to him about how the Lord had called out Abraham and had prospered him and this covenant blessing was on Abraham. And if that was not enough, then years later, Jacob comes on the scene. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, even as Jacob has been in his house, as he has seen his own riches, his own flocks prosper, remember two weeks ago, he himself said, I'm blessed because of your, the God of your father, Jacob. He recognized that. I had not much initially, but Jacob, after you've come, I've also prospered. So he recognized that. And then, if that's not enough, he saw how, despite trying to deceive Jacob and mistreat Jacob, Jacob has only gotten prosperous. And if that's not enough, when he's angry and he's chasing after Jacob and his family, the Lord himself comes to him in a dream, telling him not to interfere with Jacob. And he gets it. And he doesn't interfere with Jacob. But he has no excuse then to reject this living God. Absolutely no excuse. And yet, that is what he does. Laban is lost in sin, full of himself, trying to always make himself good and bowing down to idols, thinking that they might bless him and continue to deliver him and prosper him and even save him. Laban is a picture of a person totally lost in sin. Self-absorbed in himself. 
in his own interests, looking to use others for his own benefit. And someone who, despite seeing the works of the Lord, rejects him. And even being fearful of him, after being warned, and yet will not bow down to him. Laban is truly a picture of someone who is lost in sin. Friend, if you're listening to this today, and if you are not a Christian, let me plead with you. If you reject the God of the Bible, if you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, it will be your ruin. Because you will give an account to this holy, holy, holy God, the fearful one, the awesome one, and you will be found guilty on that final day. And you will be cast into the lake of fire and eternally damned. But let me also tell you, friend, this fearful, awesome one is also a gracious and loving God. Yes, he's a God that you cannot have on your terms. There are things about him you may not understand, the way he operates that is beyond you, but he is still good. He is still a gracious and merciful God. And because he is gracious and loving, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world in the form of a man. And he lived in this world and he saw all the sin in this world and all the suffering in this world and all the idolatry and all the constant rejection and rebellion against the true and living God. And while Jesus came to save sinners, you know, the world in their sin rejected him, their only hope. And they said, crucify him. And they crucified him on that cross. And yet, as we have seen, God has his way of working through things, right? Even through the sin of man. God was still providentially working through that, whereby it was part of his plan where Jesus would be crucified on that cross and he would bear the wrath of God, the judgment of God for sinful people like you and me, where he would take the place of sinners and he would die in the place of sinners. Why? Because he's a merciful and a gracious God. And Jesus died and then he rose up on the third day, conquering sin and Satan, the ultimate deceiver. Grabbing people from the clutches of sin and death where Satan was really the master there, using the sting of death, holding them in sin and trying to hold them with him. And Jesus conquered them all, defeated them all. 
And now, for all who will trust in Jesus, the true and living God who has come in the form of a human being, all those who turn from their ways, from their wicked ways, from any kind of idol worship and truly trust Him as Lord and Savior, they will be saved. They will have life eternal with this good and gracious and awesome God. Friend, if you are here today, I would plead with you to turn to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about him, please come and talk to me. Or perhaps someone here that you know is a Christian, and they would love to talk to you about how you can know this Lord Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, why is it that you are saved in one sense? Is it your clever scheming? Your clever reasoning? Is that why you're saved and others are not? No. It is because God graciously came and opened your eyes to himself. God has done that work. And while in one sense we would say those who trust in Jesus are saved, there's also a sense in which we will ultimately be saved when Jesus returns. So again, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that for those of us who have put their trust in Jesus, our salvation is secure. Our deliverance is secure. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what Pharaoh or no matter what prime minister or premier or anyone else comes our way, we who put their trust in Jesus can be assured that we will be delivered and ultimately be saved and be home with him. Let's pray together. Great God and creator of heaven and earth, Merciful Father, gracious Savior, thank you for opening our eyes to yourself. Left to ourselves, we would be just like Laban, lost in our sin perhaps seeing some evidence of you, but always rejecting you. Thank you for opening our eyes and giving us a new heart. Thank you for saving us, and we thank you for the confidence that we have, that even in an ultimate sense, we will be saved for all of us who have put our trust in Jesus. We thank you for the assurance we have. We thank you for the confidence that we have. And we pray that the days that you give us on this earth, however short or long it may be, help us to be faithful to you, fully devoted to you, faithfully standing up for you, and never turning left or right. And we pray that through it all, you would be honored and glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.